Hi, my name is Teresa Michael Wu. And I'm Tanisha Ramchal. This is Seek Human Spaces podcast, where we explore how to embrace our humanness while smashing oppressive norms. Today, Teresa and I are going to be talking about safe spaces versus human spaces. And do safe spaces really exist? So I'm excited to have this conversation with you, Teresa, because during the pandemic, Teresa and I spent a lot of time together and we would go on these walks and we would have conversations like this. And in fact, we even joked about starting a podcast called Walking in the Woods. <laughs> and that was that seems like such a long time ago, but it's a topic that's also relevant now. But before we get into that, Teresa, can you share a little bit about your background and who you are? Sure. I um remember those walks very fondly, Tanuja, and I think I got to know you so well. And I think why we're so drawn to talking with each other is because of similarities in our background. So I'm first-generation Egyptian-American, and I think being an immigrant, a child of immigrants in this country, allows us to grow up in a different way than maybe folks who were born here and raised with generations of family. So we might have a different lens in terms of what we saw in our homes versus what we saw in our schools and, and our workplaces, et cetera. Um, I've worked at Baruch for about uh, 11 years doing international admissions. I bring that passion of um, exploring cultures and identities into my work in trying to help students come from so many different countries here and thus become very aware of you know, the American experience and how students and people are fighting so hard to be here Yet at the same time, we sometimes struggle with the existence of who we are and how this country came to be and all of that, the, the things that come with it. And I love what you said in the beginning about smashing oppressive norms, because certainly on our walks during 2020 to 2022, you had me sometimes pause in the street and think, wow, I didn't even consider you know, how we're all in the system. So I can go on and on, which we will do during this talk. But thank you so much for having me. and. Uh, things finally we're doing our walk in the woods podcast <laughs> yeah so much fun and i i also um think of your experience in the peace corps and how that has also shaped you in terms of the cultural experience and being exposed to uh, multiple cultures and in terms of the people that you were volunteering with in terms of where you were located but when you hear safe space what, what does that bring up for you so much, so much. And I just want to say that the experience of leaving this country and living in East Timor for two years really does, there's, you see yourself differently when you're outside of where you usually are. So I advise anybody listening to this podcast, students, or, you know, if you've never been outside the U.S., please do go try it and see, you might get a sense of your Americanness in a different way. So regarding safe space, I think safe space is a term we hear so much. Oh, don't worry about it. We're in a safe space. Um, this is a safe space. You can you can say exactly what you feel, et cetera. But is it indeed a safe space? Because um, we're still living in this system. And I have, a, I have an example. I can recall very, very distinctly this idea of do not cry in the workplace, especially as a woman. And so walking around when everything's okay, I feel like, oh yeah, I love my my space. It's such a safe space, the people I work with, et cetera. And I remember being in a meeting with my boss and, and I was trying to hold back tears. I was talking about something and it, they came out, the tears came out. And 
I felt like I had lost. I lost because I couldn't keep my tears inside. So on the outside, you have me saying like, oh my God, I love my workspace. It's just so safe. But then when I reflect back on, I didn't feel safe to let out a human emotion that was so overwhelming that tears came. So while the folks around me might be very friendly and inviting, I didn't feel okay crying and only realizing this years later of thinking what we label as safe space is is maybe just a, a space where we're still trying to fit into these norms and being a professional version of myself does not include crying and fully being in emotions that maybe should be only for home. And that should be, I'm underlining that. So in summary, is a safe space really somewhere we have all around us? Uh, I don't feel that even if I'm comfortable and happy at work, is it a safe space? I'm not sure it can be labeled that way if if there's p- penalties for crying and being too emotional at work. So it's performative a lot of times when mm-hmm. people say this is a safe space. And I can relate to what you're saying because I remember very early in my career not saying certain things or holding back on certain emotions, but not knowing why I was doing that. And looking back now, realizing it's because those spaces were not safe. And often what we see specifically in the workplace is an organization saying that we are for diversity, we are for equity, we are for inclusion. But in fact, it's lip service and it's not really an inclusive space because for me, an inclusive space is a safe space. And it means that if I disagree with my boss, I can say that. Or if I'm feeling sad, I can cry, right? right? And that is where there's space for someone's humanity to exist. I remember once specifically having a conversation with a boss because the space was, I didn't feel the space was inclusive and having this conversation and saying that this is not a safe space. And what I later realized is that that conversation didn't make him feel comfortable And he turned back to me and he's like, well, I don't feel safe with you right now. Mm -hmm. And recognize a lot of times that we mistake uh, comfort for safety, because I would say Mm -hmm. for me, a safe space is not a space that's always comfortable because we are going Mm -hmm. to have hard conversations, because Mm -hmm. we are going to disagree. But can we see another person and their perspective and where they're coming from without canceling them or without Mm -hmm. somebody canceling? Us And that's why when I was thinking about this podcast and Matthew and I were talking about what is it that that we want to create, we named the podcast Seek Human Spaces because I feel human spaces is a better definition for what we are creating than this performative safe space. But there are a lot of trainings on how to create safe spaces. Have you attended any of those? It's funny you say that, Tanuja, because I remember when, uh, I, when I first started at Baruch, I saw signs on people's doors saying safe zone. This is a safe zone. And I didn't know that that I thought you just take the sign and put it on your office, indicating to a student, this is a signal. You can come speak to me about anything. And so I was like, oh, how do I get one of these signs so student can feel safe? Which how funny and naive to think that putting a sign will make somebody feel safe. And furthermore, if, if I complete, I don't know, an hour long training or however long that is, uh, all of a sudden I'm deemed safe. To me, what's unsafe is all of the years and years of miseducation that we might have had in terms of um, the lack of appropriate U.S. history. And that has led to, you know, the, the state that we're in now in terms of um, 
ageism, racism, you know, misogyny. I think we we can't undo that in 45 minutes or a training that deems us unsafe. So I have, I believe I have, you know, in my mind, I'm not going to hold on to, I attended that safe, whatever training, and now I'm certified safe. So while I have certainly attended many of these sorts of things, um, I think reckoning with my humanity and the judgment I pass on myself and others, that's going to be until the end, right? And right, that's so, something we're always working on. 100%. And whether it's um, implicit bias training, you know, all these trainings that we have Baruch sending us <laughs> to make sure we complete on our Blackboard, um, I don't think we walk away from any of these. Sure, hopefully we catch a tidbit or two or maybe understand a policy, but I think it's through human interactions, through those walks we did together, that we're really in uncomfortable spaces about what biases, what prejudices do we hold? And really, are are we going to be able to um, be real with those and move accordingly when a student comes to us or a person comes to us? To me, there's no training that will undo that sort of thing. This is life. Life is the training that we are going through. And how easy it is for an organization to just check the box and say, we've completed this training. So look, we are exactly. a safe space because I think mm-hmm. that is what they get away with all the time. Mm. And in fact, when you when you said, if you have that sign on your door and now you're saying I'm a safe space for students, but are you really a safe space for students if they can't speak a certain way? Like I've heard somebody saying that a student came to their office and they said, acts, and that triggered uh-huh. them because the word is ask. You right. know, and like all of those things, if we can't hold space for that, how can we say that it's a safe space? Mm-hmm. And that's also what stops us from really relating to each other. Right. Absolutely. And then we come versions of ourselves. My work version, my, you know, I'm dropping my kid off at school version. Right. And we have like these personas. And this reminds me, Tanuja, maybe like a month ago, I was checking out at Trader Joe's one near Baruch on my way to work. And I had a sweater on that said Baruch or whatever. And the person checking me out said, oh, Baruch College. I tried, but I just didn't fit in there. I'm like, oh, wait, what? Tell me more. He told me, he's like, the students, everybody's wearing a suit. It just feels so competitive. I, I just felt like I was so different than everybody. So all of that to say, he didn't feel safe. He dropped out, didn't complete his degree, regrets it because it's so many, how long ago. But I thought to myself, oh, what a, what a sad story because there's so many people that feel exactly like him. And I know once you start talking, even to the students in suits that realize, oh, don't worry, you don't have to have it together. It's okay if you're concerned about your GPA or you don't want to really be an accounting major. All these facades, the versions of yourself that you're walking through because you're trying to maintain yourself in this safe, unsafe space, we're all performing on a play, but then one person tells the truth and then other people feel safe to tell the truth. We, how many times have we seen that, Tunisia, in the spaces we've held for students? even whether it's about your name or your origin. It's amazing when the first person is brave enough to go, what comes after. So this this checkout, this person doing checkout at Trader Joe's, his trajectory changed because he didn't feel safe or comfortable at Baruch um, around people who didn't look like him, don't dress like him, and he didn't find his safe space. So it just struck me so hard when I heard him say wistfully, oh, Baruch College, I tried. And, you know, to that end, Tunisia, we see all the time CUNY boasting about the access it provides, about celebrating all of the different nationalities and cultures. However, 
I'm on the side of admissions and I see what they have to do to get in for admissions, right? So what we say on the outside is, wow, we speak this many languages at CUNY. But do you know that students are still labeled what's called ESL, English as a second language? I find that term very offensive. I think it's Americans who really don't speak more than one language. And it's a sort of projection onto Americans of like, oh, you speak a different language, that must be your second. We have students coming with fourth, fifth languages. And I cringe every time. It's still in print. It, this is our Tools for Clear Speech program called the ELL, English Language Learner, right? There's different terms, but somehow CUNY and this name is still in circulation. But I'm even getting into the details of something that's more, the issue is more how international applicants are treated, how international students are treated at Baruch in the heart of New York City when a student has an accent, when a student has a non-Western name. You see students changing their names and it's it's just like stripping of identity, stripping of identity, and they're trying to conform, right? I was telling a student, and I think it's my own origin of name, like my name is Teresa, but I go by Teresa because I didn't have the guts as a five-year-old in kindergarten to say, no, anyone just pronounce Teresa, please pronounce it. I didn't have pride in my identity the way I do now. And so when I speak to the students and they say, oh, you can call me Jane, but my name is you know, from whichever country, beautiful country, they're coming with their beautiful name. And they say, well, I just want my professor to be able to pronounce. I said, but this is why we want you here, to educate us about where you're coming from. That's that's what CUNY says in the paper, right? (laughs) On the surface of, please, like you're bringing the world into the classroom. And part of that is your name. So I think I'm fighting back against my own eraser of my identity and my parents' pressure to conform and fit in, because now I'm in a comfortable place where my survival doesn't depend on it. So I'm trying to instill in my kids to celebrate who where they're coming from. So that's breaking intergenerational, you know, passing it down. So in terms of conforming, I, I feel like I work with a population, I think we all do at Baruch or in CUNY or in the world, how we are parts of the process of erasing people's identity and making them to fit in hierarchy of institution of education. We're getting students to get their degrees so that they can move up. But um, you know, it's all just dressing fancy names to maybe talk about professionalism and conforming to an institution or our, the system in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many things you said, uh, <laughs> you said there. I have seen as well where somebody would ask an international student, what is your American name? And seeing nothing wrong with that, because right. also if you had an American name, it was easier for you to get a job. I remember also an advisor once uh, having this reaction when a student was asked what kind of cheese and wine they liked, and the student basically said yellow cheese and red wine, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that was a cause for concern because mm-hmm. if they were interacting with people in a professional setting, like what does that matter in the scheme of things that that right. is what you have to do? If you, even if you don't have an interest in cheese or even if you don't have an interest in wine, that you mm-hmm. have to pretend now in order to play <laughs> into these norms and into these standards of who you need to be in order to get a job in the corporate world. And people don't realize how dehumanizing this is. And I think it's also what is very common in spaces like education, where people see themselves 
as helpers and the facilitators of social mobility. Mm. Right? They're doing this important work to help people elevate in life. But it also becomes like you're basically supporting the crab in getting to the top of the barrel. Yes. You're not breaking down the barrel. And again, I think people can justify that because it also makes them feel good about mm-hmm. themselves that mm-hmm. I'm doing this work. And at the same time, it can be very dehumanizing when you're not seeing the human, when you're not allowing space for that person to come as they are. Mm-hmm. And even as you were talking about ESL, I was thinking about if we're threatened by somebody speaking multiple languages, then we have to justify how important we are because mm-hmm. we speak English well and we speak English better than you. Right, right. It's a way also to offset that threat, right? And and to come back to that space where we feel, quote unquote, safe, come back into our comfort zone. But that's not real safety because mm-hmm. it's basically I have to punish other people for me to feel good about myself or I have to put them down for me to feel good about myself versus we can all be who we are in mm-hmm. this there's space for all of that without having to make other people wrong or without having to improve them or without having to fix them that we love to do in higher education it's amazing to know that everything you're saying and whether a student is international or not i notice this trend um wherever i work it doesn't have to be baruch it's just um wherever we are in higher education the sort of idea that a student is inconveniencing a staff member or a faculty. And and I please, audience, please do not make any mistake. I am also part of that in terms of whether a student's emailing me and it's inappropriate or, you know, I'm not always responding with grace. I just want to be clear. I'm in the system too. And also, oh man, the student, I don't understand their English. Like I'm also grappling with my inner voice and my judgment and all of my, you know, what I grew up with, right? So when I see students, we often say, oh, they didn't read their email. That Well, they didn't read their email. It's their fault. But it's, I don't know if I've read all of my email either when, as a customer, as a client, et cetera. So, um, you know, blaming, blaming, right? And I remind students, we're, we as staff are here for you, not the other way around. So please, indeed. But I, don't you see students being scared to make noise because of retaliation or this will affect my grade? I mean, I have an email in my inbox sitting And it's from a student saying he's convinced a professor doesn't like him and he's getting bad grades. And and I just feel like we're also maybe nervous about what happens if I I truly raise my concern? What are what's the retaliation going to be? So I feel that students, although they are the ones that's what the institution is here for. Right. But are they empowered to speak up? Are they empowered to, you know, some are indeed, but I think the majority maybe don't feel comfortable. And so that's also part of the dehumanization that you're talking about, because at the end of the day, they came to get their degree. Give me my piece of paper. What do I have to do to get it? And this is why I think awareness, students having that level of awareness. I was actually talking to a student this morning and he was very aware. And he was also um, sharing with me his experience of not being a business student and talked about that experience and how when you're in an environment and you don't fit into that norm, you can feel very much like an outsider because that's that's when the space is not Mm. an inclusive space Mm -hmm. and it's hard to get guidance. That's when somebody goes to an office once and they never go back. 
and it becomes this, oh, they're not responsible or they're very complacent. Mm. And and it becomes, oh, that's on the student right. versus let's look at ourselves. Let's look at, at are we creating that environment for them to approach us? Exactly. Um, or, or if they come to see us, are we giving them a lecture or are we telling them here are the 10 things that you should be doing versus yeah. sitting with them and understanding what's going on, not just in the realm of school, but tell me about, you know, other challenges that you're facing, because that's also affecting everything else in your life. That's the human that we yes. can be able to sit with. And your tears are welcome here. Yes. And I can sit with that. Like, I am not afraid of that because if I am afraid of that, I can't really sit with you. Like when you were saying earlier, the crying at work, if a boss can't sit with that, how are you going to feel if you start crying and the boss is like, here are the tissues, like cry, yeah. your, cry your tears. And that is something that I learned very early on. Like when somebody's crying, don't hand them tissues because they need to have that moment mm-hmm. to be, it, it's okay for you to cry. Even if it makes me uncomfortable, I have to look at my own stuff. I, Tanuja, I learned that from you in terms of you don't have to pass the tissue box. Um, I had a student crying recently and I, my reflex was to reach for the tissue box. And in my mind, I was like, no, I'm still showing support because, you know, I'm crying, like cry, but here's tissue. But I said, okay, put your hand, like I, I was purposefully thinking of you and our walks and these talks because I indeed wanted to send the message cry cry it's a normal human experience you went through something so difficult and it's okay and it's it's amazing how powerful that is to just sit there and accept and I'm somebody who just likes to talk and to be silent and really listen is a gift you can give somebody. And I think certainly we've talked about how there's no answers there. It's not about coming for the answer. It's about receiving somebody's emotions, somebody, wherever they're at. And oftentimes um, I I also sit in the one-stop shop and students will come in in distress and I can see there's something on their face, but they get right to the heart of the matter. I need to speak with financial aid. I need to speak with da, 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 whatever. And I start asking questions about like what you just said, Tanuja, like what's going on behind this issue that you're coming. And and there's always a moment of like a code switch back to being human of, oh, well, my mother is not releasing the form of it. And they, they, they relax their shoulders and they see, oh, I can be human. And we have a candy jar in the, in the boss, because I know it's another signal that, Hey, we're human here. We like candy. So anything of a signal we can give, it's just incredible. And it reminds me of our all of our collective oppression when we're not used to being human in any space and we just operate towards an answer for a question. So it's something you can do very little. Smiling. Try smiling when we're talking to somebody. It creates a completely different environment. And I don't take my own advice every day. Okay. So this is a reminder. Bring that humanity. So I'm, I love that we're talking about this. Yeah. How do we also do this work? Because you and I have to do this work to be able to create space for others. Like Mm -hmm. when we're triggered, right? Mm. Because things are going to trigger us. And I think this is what people believe that a safe space is going to be that space where, you know, you're not going to be triggered at all. Like it's just going to be a happy place all the time. (laughs) And that is not what a safe space is. Like if we even think of relationships, right? Mm. Outside of work, outside of school, like those relationships are not always going to be comfortable. But can I sit 
with you, Teresa, and say, hey, Teresa, when you said that today, that really made me angry. And I would love to work through that because I think that repair is also part of the process where we can disagree, where conflict is okay. I mean, two people having very different views, that's okay. And there's Mm -hmm. space for that. And we can still see the humanity in each other as opposed to when Teresa said this thing about Guyanese people, it made me feel invalidated. And then I'm just going to shut down and not say say anything mm-hmm. anymore to you versus, hey, Teresa, when you said that thing about Guyanese people, it actually made me feel invalidated. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Right? Because it's also how we're trained to stifle our emotions. And in stifling our emotions, we don't show up. We don't say things. We lose ourselves in terms of that and I think that's a big part of the system in terms of your emotions are not welcome here and if your emotions are not welcome here and if you can't be sad and you can't be angry well I can't speak up because then if I speak up or if I cry at work I'm going to lose my job and then the cycle just repeats yeah so it's like okay, what do I do after work? Like go drink a drink so I could feel better. And then we press, the, press those emotions down. And then maybe around the people that love us and we love them, we're not really our true selves because look where those feelings got us to begin with. And we sink deeper into the hole. And it's just, it could be a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. And even when we talk about, you know, trauma, which we have addressed on an episode and how trauma first of all, affects the people who came before us. Because if you are coming from a historically oppressed group, Mm -hmm. if you are an immigrant, if you're a person of color, if you fall into the LGBTQ plus Mm -hmm. group, whatever it is, I mean, those are historically oppressed groups, still oppressed. Mm -hmm. And if your parents had to deal with that trauma, and as you were saying, you know, like fitting into the box, like you come, you live the American dream and whatever it takes to make that happen. Mm-hmm. You, you do that. And then what do you do with the people who come after you? Like, I know you're a parent as well. Right. And mm-hmm. that is the, the process of how do you start to undo that programming yes, so that you're yeah. not passing that on as well to future generations. Yeah. And as you're talking about that, I'm remembering like as a child myself, I would just overhear my parents speaking. Of course, they were mostly speaking in Arabic. But when I was asking my mom a question, my six or seven year old self, I couldn't understand. Right. And I remember her saying all the time, it's because I'm a foreigner. Okay. And the only word, the foreigner, I'm like, I know that's a band. Like my sister had a cassette tape of the brand foreigner. I'm like, does that have a relation to that? And I don't know why I didn't ask mom, what does that word mean? But maybe she was saying it in passing. And she says it as if like, oh, the sky is blue. I'm a foreigner. This is just how it is. Understanding that at work, maybe people make fun of her because of her accent. English is not her first language. I just remember that word in, or that phrase. It's because I'm a foreigner in so many contexts. And as a child, you just absorb this and you absorb like they're being matter of fact about it because they're just putting literally putting food on the table and they're hell no she's not going to say anything at work because you know that first generation they're coming over literally with you know the telltale story of five dollars in my pocket and whereas like you know they've achieved what they came they came to give a better life for their children and here we are and Tunisia and that you know we speak about what is this so-called American dream So we might have the resources now. We have plenty of food on the table, 
but what are we really grappling with in terms of these workspaces and living in an individualistic society versus the collective culture society that our parents came from, that they abandoned their families, their extended networks to come here and set up shop with no support. So it's an interesting, like, what are we trading off here? Yeah, what do we give up for that American dream? And in another episode with Sasha as well, we talked about how living in a capitalistic society that we're taught, like, you know, it's like, it's always like, more 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 you know it's it's like you never reach this point where it's enough because capitalism needs us to be not good enough in order to thrive like even with self-care what we talk about self-care is like oh i have to go spend money in a massage or i have to go Mm -hmm. you know spend Mm -hmm. money on doing something so that i can feel better versus if we actually remove those systems, what we would be able to do is to be in community with each Mm -hmm. other and support each other and take care of each other that we might not even need to work that we can actually. Right. And I remember something you pointed out to me um, when we were going through this pandemic, you know, in 2020, 2021, working remotely and, you know, everybody's stressed out, everybody's overworking. It's like we're dealing with an unprecedented situation. And I think we, there was an email about come, you know, meditate or something. And instead of dealing with the issue of what we're dealing with as employees, just getting an email to like try to come remedy the situation of by meditating for 30 minutes from an outsourced th- third party vendor, right? And versus can we talk about what's actually happening and let's go to the source. So treating the symptoms versus the cause. I think that's something you... <laughs> I didn't look at any email, like like programming without a critical eye after you pointed that out. I remember that very vividly. And back to this capitalistic society. So, so now I mentioned individualistic versus collective. Raising children in an individualistic, especially in a fast-paced place like New York City, really ties you close to that capitalism, right? So I don't have much family support or basically none when it comes to helping raise my children. And I have to pay like exorbitant amounts of money, especially when they were small for nannies and daycare, et cetera. Now that makes me that much more, you know, compliant at work because I need that check and I need that insurance for my kids, right? So I am less likely to raise any problems or anything like that because now I'm under the sort of trap more because I have a family to provide for. So it's just... talk about vicious cycles, right? So I'm less likely to make a change in my career because I need that support, et cetera. So I'm just thinking of all of these systems in place to keep us um, to keep us in place, right? And like you said, capitalism, bigger, bigger, bigger. I mean, that whole, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, what car do they have and what do I not have in the apartments? And New York is a stark place in terms of how people live. And in terms of the pandemic, I feel like when you're talking about the meditation, right? Let, let's mm-hmm. find ways to not feel this way or let's find mm-hmm. ways to deal with this. And I believe what the pandemic did as well is brought us face to face with how unsafe we feel. You had mm-hmm. this virus, nobody knew what was going on yeah. and we couldn't help but feel unsafe. But also what I think it also brought us back to is that human experience because I feel like as humans, right? And and this is my my own theory. I feel as humans, like we're born into this world and we don't know when we're going to die. Like it can happen at any moment, right? right. Like right yes. now my ceiling could fall on my head and I could die. We don't know that. And I feel yeah. 
that fear uh, because it's not safe basically mm. and that's why we are looking for that safety on the outside mm. constantly and it comes in the form of a degree and it comes in the form of a job and it comes in the form of people that we are attached to or whatever so we have all of these things but it's it's what we label as safety mm. but in my view it's what we do to not feel unsafe that underlying unsafety is there because mm-hmm. at any moment, like, you know, th- there's no real certainty. So we hold on to things for certainty. And right. this is why we call it job security. When we know, in fact, the company can fire us tomorrow or it could go under or whatever right. could happen. And we don't have a job, right? We, we, yeah. we see this happening a lot these days. And we hold on to those things so that we don't feel that underlying unsafety Versus if we can actually be with the human experience where it's like things are up and down, you know, things are, you know, one day it can be this way and I'm happy Mm -hmm. and tomorrow something's Mm -hmm. taken away from us. And to be able to be in those experiences. And I think that's where the safety comes from, because then you're okay with life being that way versus we always have to be happy. Right. And It's this thing that always feels elusive. And this is why we constantly have to be chasing, right? And 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 doing things and spending money. And we have Mm -hmm. to get money to spend money and we have to (laughs) exhaust ourselves that we don't realize that we're not truly being ourselves. Because I also feel that when I'm okay with having that human experience, when I'm okay, things are going to change. Things are not Mm -hmm. permanent. And If you're okay with that, that's when you can learn to trust yourself more in terms of what is it that really matters to me or what matters to me in this moment? Because I feel as well, and this is again from my own experience, there have been moments in my career when my body was literally telling me stop, like it was saying stop. And I thought if I stopped, I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to be broke. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to make it. And I think that underlying feeling is always there, but it's that it's it's yeah. always being covered up because we are afraid that if we stopped and if we were not in this job that is draining us, that I'm not going to be able to survive. So again, it comes back to the survival needs, right? And yeah. that if we were to stop, this is what's going to happen. So I think th- the fear of that happening, the fear of being homeless, the fear of being broke, the fear of basically you're going to die is what drives us in a way. So it's that constant lack of safety that we feel drives us. And we, what we do when we are in a certain system, mm. we operate based on the norms yes. because it, it feels like that system is giving us the certainty. What we do is end up oppressing ourselves because we have to conform to the system to get those benefits. And judging people who don't conform. And, and wow, you you shed a lot of light here because I didn't, I don't know if I consciously think about the biological sort of um, need for safety. I mean, of course we know we need to be safe, but when you're saying we don't know what could happen tomorrow, it really, it's an interesting way to see how we look for safety because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And as we saw very recently with Baruch and lots of suffering of the network outages, but you know, reactions can really vary right? In terms of, you know, okay, got to pivot, do this, this, and this. And then some people, it's really, it's really catastrophic. So 
I'd like, I say on paper that I'm flexible and able to handle change, but then when it's confronting right now, like it is a big stark reminder of how much we do look for safety and maybe we don't label it safety, but when, when it's taken from us, we feel unsafe, like you said. So it's really daunting to think about, can I really be okay with what's happening? <laughs> That's a big, a big takeaway for me because I say I am, but do my actions reflect that? Do my thoughts reflect that? Forget actions. I'm panicking, right? If I'm panicking, I'm not okay with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's back to that discomfort you said. Mm-hmm. Is safe, safe, like you said, safe. I think we're saying that's synonymous with comfort. Mm-hmm. No. I think safe, there's a lot of discomfort. And that life is uncertain, that change is always happening because when you said the fear of change, what you're basically saying that if I give up this thing that I'm holding Mm. on to, what I'm going to feel is unsafe. And that is what I don't want to feel. And if we are saying what is safety is that you're able to feel all of it or you're able to hold space for all of it Hmm. that means that you can also hold space for that feeling and it's how do we develop the capacity to hold space for that feeling because if I'm okay with feeling unsafe then I don't have to operate based on the rules of the system right Hmm. it's a quote I shared in another podcast episode James Baldwin has this quote where he says if you have nothing to lose you're the most dangerous to the system wow Right. So if you have nothing to lose and and that requires you recognizing your value as a human. Right. As opposed to outsourcing your value to a job, to a degree, to your connections and the important people that you Mm -hmm. know, because Mm -hmm. when we're constantly doing that, we're also not holding space for people because then we're just using them to survive. Right. Right. And so you build all of these things that you now have to upkeep and then you don't be, you become less and less dangerous because you're less willing to lose all of those things. So like James Baldwin, that is an, a really powerful quote because so like, like I said before, like I have, I have kids to take care of. So I'm less dangerous to the system because I have things to lose. Like you were saying, homelessness, you're not going to be able to eat. You're thinking those are things you're holding as I can lose those things. I can lose my safety. I can lose my apartment. I can lose my security. So you become less dangerous. But as you gradually understand like both truths, like you were saying, it's a, it's a gradual uncovering of how much of that fear is real and how much of that fear is simply holding me back from pursuing what you really want to do. Yeah. And when the system says, here is what you need to do to have a home and have (laughs) food on the table you get a job and you, you know, you do what you're told and you mm-hmm. basically follow the norms and then you'll have all of those. So that, so it's also having enough to the point that you can take care of those needs. But also if you're working for an organization, even though you are providing the labor for them to make the profit, you're not sharing that profit. You're no, not getting enough to take care of your needs that <laughs> so you need to come back tomorrow. Right. And, and that... To me, you know, I work with a student population that brings in more tuition, right? So it just flashes back to a memory I said to a former um, colleague that, oh, well, I recruit international students, so I should have a bigger budget because they bring in more revenue. And this person just sat there and laughed at me and said, you you think if you bring that money in, that's going to directly impact you? And I just, 
I felt stupid and I felt like I was able to laugh. I was safe with this colleague. Like it, it, I was able to say that to me, it's like, so what I'm pointing to is the fact that we think it's so that we are providing and we're the ones making this change and make, and we should be able to reap the benefits of the work that we're doing when in fact we're completely replaceable and there's nothing personal. And there's actually, some people might hear that. We might hear that and think, oh my God, how terrible. There's also a lot of freedom in that because when you realize how replaceable we all are, we realize we gain, we can gain our lives back a little bit in deciding what's important to us. Mm-hmm. And realizing how much fear controls us in our day-to-day yes. lives, right? Fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. What happens if your boss rejects you, right? Uh-huh. That is a big fear. And even the fear of making mistakes because then you can get in trouble for right. them. And how all of these fears are driving us versus, you know, to be human, means that you can make mistake means that you can mess up means that somebody can reject you i mean like that is also something that i've had to work on that hey people have the right to their Mm. experience of not liking me and Mm -hmm. to be okay with that versus making somebody wrong for not liking me because then i'm creating that human space for them to be because you're free to do what and that's freedom that's liberation you know right and when we're operating in oppressive systems liberation is what matters is is what should be the priority because even when we say oh we want to keep the peace mm. what we are saying is that we conform and we don't say anything because mm. a lot of times when you say oh I'm, I'm doing it because it's like this keeps the peace but you are also now complicit and perpetuating it because you're not speaking up and because you're not saying anything and you are not making it safe for others mm-hmm. to express themselves. Right. But, and right. A, lot, a lot of times we also judge others. As you were saying, you started off so- talking about like the judgments. This is part of being human. We are going to judge right. people, but also to catch ourselves in the judgment. So just like somebody says, oh, well, they don't speak English. Well, I can't understand them or whatever, you know, so flippantly. What's going on for that person? that or what happened to that person that they can completely write off this human being like something had to die inside of them I think to treat another person so poorly when in reality we're all maybe just wounded children walking around that never attended to the matters of what what happened to us as children right and that's how we're carrying that around with us into our, we, we are adults but we're carrying around this baggage from childhood that didn't get addressed And so that comes out in, I don't like that person because they don't speak English or because they have green hair or fill in the blank and what maybe they just never worked. So all of a sudden that person gets cut off and dies with an opportunity to understand why am I reacting that way? Yeah. And as you said, like looking within yourself, like what part of you died or what part of you had to, you, you had to erase Mm-hmm. In order for you, maybe uh, you had to speak English well in order to be mm-hmm. to be recognized. And that was how you got approval and yes. validation when you spoke English well. And now it, it's like when you see somebody not speaking, mm-hmm. you know, English in the way that it's quote unquote supposed to be spoken, <laughs> that that triggers you. But instead of trying to fix that person, maybe you need to look at yourself, how it's okay for you to make mistakes and not be grammatically correct and to right. you know, say things uh, without being so professional all the time. And that's right. when you can actually have a human connection with somebody. It's not when 
you're stifling yourself because if you're stifling yourself, people can't see you. Right. And how is it ever going to be safe to be you if you if you're not allowing yourself to be you? Because how are you ever going to get to know who you really are? I remember yeah. walk, taking, leaving our walks thinking, well, who am I really? <laughs> After our soul-bearing, soul-searching walks, um, it would leave me questioning, like, wait, who's underneath all of this this performance, right? And like, what we do at work and what we do at home. So we're still exploring this. And I think this is the work forever. that we do with each other and mm-hmm. in community and have those authentic hard vulnerable conversations and talking about what triggers us and talking about like these things so that we can have that human space for each other hold that human space for each other to mess up versus Mm -hmm. you have to constantly do things my way so that I can feel comfortable and how often do we do this whether it's in our family situations whether it's at work whether it's even with friends that we do this where it's about not getting triggered Mm. when you are gonna if you put yourself out there and you're uh, being yourself you are going to trigger people and people are going to trigger you and that's part of life like not to try to avoid that because it's what we're doing when we say safe space is that we're trying to avoid people getting triggered. And that's mm-hmm. when we get into cancel culture and we get into people getting fired and we can't say certain things at work and we can't right. bring up real issues. And we just continue oppressing ourselves and oppressing others. Absolutely. And that's where I think we hear so much about people pleasing and how that stops, mm-hmm. you know, we're people pleasers at work, at home, et cetera. And so that, like you said, keeping the peace. But as like at what we're sacrificing so much by being those people pleasers, and we're really ultimately, you know, um, harming ourselves because mm-hmm. we don't really say what we want and say what we need. And even you just telling, saying this about are we fully ourselves or can being our fully ourselves? I don't know if I'm fully myself in all the spaces. No, like not. I still feel unsafe in certain places where I would hold back, and it's it's also having the awareness to see that happening. As opposed to just like mm-hmm. shutting down and, you know, because I can say right now, I feel afraid and I can choose to speak up. So both yeah. things can can be true versus early in my career, where I am afraid and I'm not going to say anything because I'm, I'm going to get fired. It's, it's weighing like what's important to me. Is it my integrity mm-hmm. or is it maybe I, I really need this money to pay my bills this month? And that's like, that's going to take priority. Right. Exactly. It's a, we're on the hook, you know? Yeah, and and this is a this is a conversation, Teresa uh, and I are just we're exploring. We're not mm-hmm. by no means yeah. that we have all the answers. It it does require questioning the narratives, to question the assumptions we're operating under. What would you say, Teresa, to anyone listening to this regarding safe spaces, human spaces? I would say that you know, we had a rich conversation for this past, however long, how many minutes and understanding, listening to your body and listening to your mind of what came up, right. During certain phrases or certain parts of the conversation. And maybe in those moments of discomfort or any, any feeling that might not be what you expected to explore that, think about it, maybe jot it down. You know, writing is such a great way to get thoughts out, but play around with it and feeling any feeling of aversion, there's something to explore there. So maybe listen to it again. And I'm curious to hear what you would say, Tanuja. For me, coming into my body and and feeling my feelings has been tremendously helpful. 
And because I also feel um, making space for those things is also how I can make space for others on the outside. If I'm not mm. making space for my anger, if I'm not making space for my sadness, if I'm not making space for other emotions, what we call the quote unquote bad emotions or negative mm-hmm. emotions. And I don't think any emotion is a negative emotion. They're all yeah. human emotions. Yes. Some may be uncomfortable because of how we've been conditioned. But if we truly listen to anger, a lot of times it's because we want to, mm-hmm. you know, revolt against what's on the outside, but it doesn't feel safe to do that because then there are consequences. But also it doesn't mean that if you're present with your anger, it means that I have to revolt or be violent, but I can actually say my th- this anger is, is valid in this moment. And mm-hmm. being able to validate those emotions versus being just a robot walking around in the world and not having any emotions or having to suppress your emotions. Because I also feel in a society like ours, that is something that happens a lot in terms of the suppression of emotions. And But mm. it also has consequences in terms of addictions and other things that overwork and, yes, you know, when people talk right. about being so exhausted because if we're if we're spending so much of our energy repressing and suppressing and oppressing um, things inside of us it's exhausting to do that and it may not be physically it's not like we're going and farming every day but it, it, it requires a lot of emotional labor to do that as well being human is messy and it's an exploration till the from the beginning to the end so i would say we need to keep exploring and paying attention when these feelings come up Thank you so much, Teresa. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. It's um, bringing back a lot of fond memories from those days when, you know, maybe there wasn't a lot of love and light. <laughs> so those walks were crucial. And I look forward to our and next walk together. And community. Yeah, right. Yes. So, uh, so important. You've been listening to Seek Human Spaces. Be sure to subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Catch you next time. And remember to be human.